0: This is a QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast.
1: Knowledge is key and we haven't had the full picture when it comes to the BRCA gene, but an incredible new technique means women will have fewer unknowns when making their decisions about their treatment. And Professor Mandy Spertel is working with a team on cracking open the answers of which BRCA variants may be harmless. Thanks for joining us, man. Hi there. What is the BRCA gene and who has it? There are
0: several BRCA genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2. Sometimes people call them BRCA1 and BRCA2, and those are the two most well-known breast cancer susceptibility genes. And we all have them, even men. It's not a problem if they're working very well, our genes. It's when they have a fault in them and they can't do what they're supposed to do in the cell, and that can lead to problems. And in terms of these two genes, if there's a fault, that means the gene can't make the protein that it's supposed to make properly. You don't have good enough DNA repair, and that leads to an accumulation of damage in cells, and that promotes the development of cancer. And it's recognized in women and men some men by having a much earlier onset of cancer and a strong family history of cancer, specific cancer types. And so, for instance, BRCA1 is known to cause breast and ovarian cancer mostly, but also causes pancreatic cancer. There are a few other cancer types too that are now being added onto the list. And for BRCA2, the hallmarks of that have always been female breast cancer, male breast cancer, and more recently, prostate cancer, but of course, also causes pancreatic and maybe increases ovarian cancer as well. That's the sort of background to the genes. And what's really good thing to know about this is, although it's obviously a horrible thing to have a fault in these genes, if you do have one, it can be helpful to you and your family members to know about it, because it means you can take measures to decrease your risk, even if you've Had a breast cancer, you might choose to have a prophylactic mastectomy to decrease the risk of breast cancer in the other breast. And oophorectomy, um, removal of the ovaries to reduce your risk of ovarian cancer. And of course, if an individual is found to carry a, a faulty gene, screen the relatives to see who then has the faulty gene. So they can start afresh, even before any knowledge of a cancer diagnosis, to undergo screening all those sorts of things. And this became quite publicized with Angelina Jolie making a very public awareness about the fact that she had inherited a BRCA1 gene fault from her mother and that she was going to undertake mastectomy and then later on oophorectomy to reduce her cancer risks. Individuals who have watched their family members suffer from cancer, obviously much more motivated to take these sorts of actions. That's, I guess, the reason why we undertake testing of these genes is because we know we can do something to help individuals who have the faults. Even a greater motivation more recently has been that these BRCA genes have a particular type of damage that they cause when the protein doesn't work. And there are certain drugs that can be targeted to the fact that you have a faulty brca one or brca 2 genes and it will work much better. So it's actually even important now for treatment of
1: cancers. Some people have a fault in their BRCA gene that might not go on to become one of those cancers, but they still get the same sort of treatment because of the unknown. Well, yes, let me just clarify. So some
0: faults or changes in the genes are really easy to see that they actually will result in a faulty protein. Other ones are just changes. I wouldn't even necessarily call them faults. They're just a change. And so my job is really the puzzle of which of these variants will go on to create a faulty protein or stop a protein from being made at all and which ones are just harmless. And that is important because it's been found that surgeons, I don't want to point fingers at surgeons, but there've been several studies that have shown that women who carry a variant of uncertain significance, that's what we call them, tend to be over-treated compared to what they should be They should be treated based on their personal and family history because that's what will define their personal risk, not the variant. If you don't know what the variant's doing, you should just take it out of the equation. But that, unfortunately, is not what has been happening. And so it's really important to try and find out what's happening with these variants.
1: You and your colleague have found a way to get more data to give women more information so that they can find out which of these variants might be harmful. It's information you don't have at the moment, but the information is there, isn't it? Yeah, so knowledge is key to most things. And with these
0: variants, although 10% of tests generally return what you call a positive finding, if you've selected your individuals uh, according to the right characteristics, the sort of hit rate you would expect, I will find a proper fault. But unfortunately, another 10%, will have these variants of uncertain significance. Although that sounds like a lot, which it is, <laughs> they're individually very rare because that's what makes them uncertain. If you had a lot of information about them, they wouldn't be uncertain. So they may be found in, you know, one or two individuals in the world. You would ha- literally have to scour the world. And that's what I do. I run an international consortium where we literally ask all our friends all around the globe for information about up to five, 10 families maybe on a particular variant and we pull it all together and then try and see if we can solve the problem about whether that variant is harmful or not. And so the other type of data that we can use is what's called population data, information on how frequent a variant is. Each population may have some variants that are common and other variants that are rare. So you may find some variants are common, say, in African-Americans or in Africa, but not in Saudi Arabia. And some other variants may be common in China, but not in Australia. If you look at each of those populations separately, you'll be able to say, well, if it's that common in China, it couldn't possibly be causing an increased risk of cancer, even though I've only found it in two patients in Australia. It's just chance I found it in those patients, and I shouldn't be worrying about those variants because they're too common. And that's really what we did in this study. We took a type of software, and this is through my colleague, Melissa Klein, who's brilliant at these sorts of things. She took her little bot and sent it all the way across to our collaborator in Japan, who was not allowed to share individual-level data with us, and got him to run a program there, to count up how common different variants were in his Japanese population. And we could look to see which ones were found in women with breast cancer and which ones were found in individuals without cancer. And then we could compare that information and say, well, these variants are so common in Japan, they couldn't possibly be causing breast cancer the same as our average barn door faulty BRCA1 fault.
1: Japan couldn't have shared that information with you before because of these rules because of the software and the technique that Professor Klein came up with, you're able to extract that information without breaking any privacy laws. Yeah, this is really important. And in fact, the
0: laws about sharing data have changed over time. And in Europe, the laws have become very strict over the past few years. So much so that as one colleague of mine said, Mandy, I can't send a pedigree to the hospital across the road. However, what he could do is analyze the pedigree, put a number on it and say, I think this variant does or does not track with disease. This is the number, and then send that to me. And then we can combine for all the families that have a certain variant, what is the population frequency? What is the number that describes whether the variant segregates disease? What are the tumor features? Do they look like this variant could be causing a BRCA1-related cancer or not? That's my job is to try to work out what are the certain features that tell me if a variant is more likely to be a disease-causing variant in these genes or not.
1: The bot started with your colleague in Santa Cruz. bot went over to Japan, reached down got information that was de-identified and not personalised in any way, and then the bot travelled all the way to QIMR Offer, and you and your colleagues were then able to do the work on that data to make it make sense so that we have more information on which of those variants will not go on. To cause problems.
0: That's exactly it. And in effect, the bot didn't really need to come to us. All it needed to do was spit out a table, which we then looked at. Right. That's the point. I could get a nice table that I could understand. Melissa Klein could work on her wonderful bot to do the analysis. And our colleague Momo, which is what we call him, that's his surname, but that's also his nickname. And Momo could check to see whether the bot was working properly, because he was allowed to look at the data. So he could say beforehand, I know this is the frequency I expect for this variant. Let the bot calculate it. Ah, yes, it's giving the right answer. Therefore, I can just send the summary
1: information back to Mandy. Momo was your counterpart in Japan. Yes, that's it. Now that you and the amazing Professor Klein have got together and developed this, what are the implications for getting lots of data over lots of areas of cancer and all sorts of other diseases?
0: Well, this work fits under the umbrella of the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, which is rather a mouthful, but it's an international global organisation, which is all about data sharing, trying to make sure people can share data in a safe, ethical way for the better of health. And our project is what's been called a demonstration project, always, which was about pulling together as much information as we could on these two genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2, so that we could compile it from all data sources from all around the world, so that we could give more information back to clinicians and patients about variants and whether they are important for disease.
1: What you're looking for in this data and what you've found is diversity, because you've been able to look at certain populations in the US and certain populations in Australia, but the more diverse your data, the better your information will be, and the more we will know about all sorts of genetic variants.
0: That's true. And we get slightly different answers from every different data set And that's why bringing together different data sets helps us decide whether a variant is more likely to be important or not. And as I was saying, this fits under the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health umbrella. It's a proof of principle. So we can now go and try and apply it in other research settings and clinical settings where people may have been not allowed to or just even hesitant to. Sometimes they're allowed to, but they're hesitant to share identifiable data. It also takes away the need to have all those nasty things like material transfer agreements. You don't actually transfer real data, you're transferring summary data. So it's more a collaborative agreement if you need it. Just to digress, it does mean it can be applied to other diseases. So by showing that we can do this, maybe the way the questions would be asked might be slightly different if you were, say, looking at a psychiatric disorder, but essentially anything where you know the question you want to ask, and you can say, "Can you summarise it for me in a way that I don't need to know a person's name, date of birth, age? You can maybe have an age bracket. Do they have a particular condition or not? And do they have a variant or not? And then sum it up for me so that I don't. There might be five people there, but I'm not going to be able to separate out those five people. You can just tell me how often I've seen it."
1: Is it the general population that we need to convince about not being afraid to share data? My experience is more that lawyers (laughs) might be more
0: scared about sharing data than people. It depends. In my experience from doing genetic studies, particularly if you're talking about someone who has a health condition, they are very willing to share data. They want something good to come out of the fact that they have a health condition and to solve the problem for themselves, maybe their sons and daughters or their relatives, they would like to see something good come out of them being involved in a study. The general population may be so, you know, because what's in it for them? But that's not, there are enough people who take part in research studies when they do not have a health condition that tell me that overall people are willing to share information for the better of mankind. And I think if you can make sure that it's not identifiable and take that scare away, then why not? So where to from here? The next more challenging aspect is going to take it beyond looking at frequency data and tumour pathology data, which is what we did in the study, but to actually try and get people to run more complex programmes in their local setting, like the segregation analysis. We know we can do it. But it's about enabling people to do things locally and then on share the data. Because I know that genetic testing clinics around the world like our techniques, they would like to be able to use them, but they just need to be more familiar with them. A second positive about all of this is that not only are we getting the information to help us and on sharing the information about a variant, we are also on sharing the techniques that we use.
1: And just as a patient or a consumer going to your physician in the future, you'll have information about those variants that we didn't have before, therefore more informed choices before invasive biopsies, testing and further surgery.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of my time gets spent working on what is called expert panels, international panels where a group of us sit around nowadays a zoom room and gather all the information together and say from my expert knowledge this is what I think about this variant what we think does anyone disagree do you have any data we weren't aware of and then we put a stamp on it as a panel and then it goes into a public website where other people can see why we've made that decision and then to be able to use it themselves for counselling or management, whatever is relevant.
1: The implications for this are extraordinary, not just for women and men with BRCA gene, heart conditions, uh, infectious diseases. I can see so many more opportunities.
0: Yes, I, I think it's going to be very exciting times ahead as we try to take this federated analysis style approach. The data can stay where it needs to stay. We don't have to move it, we just need to take our, analysis methods, and apply them locally.
1: I know there's an upside of everything. Is the upside of this incredible pandemic that we've all lived in, are we better at doing Zoom? Are people more comfortable meeting online and sharing data? I I don't think it's changed the data sharing.
0: The delightful thing about it is that people who wouldn't normally attend calls because they couldn't afford to could come. And they could be in there. And our calls were very interactive. Honestly, the chat session was like a flurry of activity with people asking questions. And we had an ongoing, you know, like a Google document where people could ask questions and answer them. It was just amazing. The young people in my lab who I wouldn't have been able to send but they can attend a virtual meeting. There's one thing that's missing though. It's that meeting someone at the conference dinner, start a conversation and you find out about their data set that you didn't know that they had or their family that you didn't know that they had. And you form those relationships that go on for years. I've done them. I've got them, but my postdocs don't.
1: I know that's the way your colleague, Professor Klein, first met your colleague Momo who yep,
0: contributed exactly. with Japanese. Exactly cover. yeah it was over
1: tea break so yes there we go it's full circle I think we've just proved our point. We have <laughs> a tea break is going to change the lives of women and some men all over the world and if you'd like to know more about Professor Amanda Spurdle's important work and her lab go to qimrberghoffer.edu.au Thank you so much Mandy. Pleasure. Ciao.